This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Go-Go. I'm Dr. Shane. In the studio with me is Dr. Lyndon. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. How are you? I'm uh, I'm well. I'm a bit hay fevery, so I sound a bit... That's no good. You know, things, some of the other. That's no good. I am I'm very, very happy today because how, how could you not be happy the sun was shining when I got up and the Google Doodle was about a statistician. Oh, was it? Yeah, it was so exciting. I thought, oh, what's going on in the news today? I checked my computer and it was the 90th birthday of a Japanese statistician. Oh, is that right? Yeah, his name was Horotuko Akayaki. Nice. I definitely yeah, pronounced yeah, that incorrectly. Yeah, that was good. That was good. <laughs> and he uh, designed a method to test different types of models. If you're applying different kind of models to see what's the best fit for data, he designed a model that would test how good the different models were. How yeah. cool is that? And how nice of Google to acknowledge this very important piece of statistics in a lovely Google Doodle. So if yeah, anybody's doing a search today, don't use Bing, use Google. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that's a professional endorsement. Um, <laughs> oh, no, definitely not. No, that's good. I've actually been trying this year very hard to get excited about statistics. Oh, any particular reason? Did you well, get a, a p-value that you were happy with? Well, no, no. We had a, we had a researcher on from Deakin earlier in the year, and mm-hmm. she kind of shamed me into starting to get excited about statistics. And you know, it was good to have somebody who actually was a, really good at communicating some stuff about that. And so I've been working on it, but. Um, I'm not there yet. Oh, well, yeah, you'll have, you'll have to give me some tips. I must admit, I'm still at the stage of help me statistics, yeah. help me find some significance in, in any of these results. It's very interesting. Well, I, cause I love maths, but I, I'm not big on statistics, mm. but, um, you anyway, know, I, I see the value. I yes. see the important value. And yep. I see the value in more and more healthcare professionals in particular understanding and getting better knowledge about statistics. Cause that's something that I think is really missing at the moment. Um, you know, the, the, the maths and statistics knowledge in the healthcare sector is minimal mm. and uh, you would hope that it would be a lot better than it is to bring yeah. evidence into play. Mm-hmm. Anyway, we, we could all use a bit more statistics. Yes, definitely. Yeah. Now, uh, we have a special... Uh, Discussion coming up for you folks. Um, earlier in the week, I had a great chat with a lady named Kara Santa Maria. Now, you may know her. She actually produces a very famous podcast in the US called Talk Nerdy. And it's a long-form interview podcast on science. It's fantastic. It's really worth a listen. And in about... Let me think. Just under two weeks' time, Kara will actually be here doing a show with Alan Duffy on Friday night, Friday week, at the Athenaeum Theatre, and you can get tickets. Um, if you do a search on the company Think Inc., I think it's just thinkinc.org.au, you'll be able to see all the details for the show. But uh, Kara and I had a great discussion during the week. It's going to form the majority of the show today. It's uh, It's pretty cool, actually. Best way to describe it is just two science communicators hanging out on the couch. Um, that's basically, you know, what would you possibly talk about? But it was um, it was fun, and uh, we're going to play it for you in two parts. So without further ado, I give you Kara Santa Maria. You're listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3RRR. I'm Dr. Shane, and our guest today is Kara Santa Maria. Kara is an American journalist, communicator of science, podcaster, TV host, and more recently a PhD student. She currently hosts her own podcast program, Talk Nerdy, and is a co-host on the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe podcast. Kara, it's wonderful to have you on the show today. Thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you so much for having me. Now, before we get into your trip and so forth, you're coming out to Australia soon, I wanted to give people a bit of background on you because I'm not sure all of our listeners would be tuned into your podcast like I am. It's a great podcast, first of all. Congratulations on that. Thank you. 
and um, a bit a bit on your background though, because you have an interesting history. You grew up as a as a Mormon, and I I often don't hear a straight line between that and a science communicator. Yeah, I know. It's, it's, it's interesting. I was born and raised in the Mormon church. I left when I was about 15, um, not by the choice of my parents. Um, my father remained Mormon and still is to this day with his wife and, and his family. Um, but I actually left the church long before I found science. And it's funny because sometimes I give talks at skeptic, um, conferences. Sometimes I give talks at atheist conferences and sometimes I give talks at science conferences and Apparently, it's less common to do it the way I did it, which was, you know, find my lack of religion long before I found science. It seems to be a little more common that people do it the other way around if they do it at all. Mm. And and presumably there's no version where you go the other way, where you start off in science and find religion, although I guess there might be a few. Yeah, I think there's a few out there. Yeah, you never know. Yeah. In terms of um, your upbringing, though, your, your father's an engineer, right? Yeah, yeah. So he, um, you know, he's a hydraulics engineer. I think he was trained as an, as a, an electrical engineer, went to Texas A&M, which is a really big, mm. um, school for that. And now, you know, he's older now and he's been working for several years in sales, selling hydraulic equipment, which of course is what you do when you're an engineer. And then you realize you'd make way more money selling the stuff that you used to engineer. Yeah. <laughs> so, 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 I mean, in, in a sense, you were, you were engaged with science and, and learning though, even though you're in a, sort of Mormon environment, uh, there, there must have been a fair amount of that sort of mindset of, you know, education is important back then. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I can fault my parents for a few things, but one thing I cannot fault them for is um, really kind of inspiring me and promoting that I have a deep interest in academia. They, you know, they gave me a lot of opportunities and they really did inspire that in me. So um, I appreciate them, you know, to the end of the earth for that, because I think if it weren't for them, I may not have been so focused on my education. Mm. Talk nerdy is your your own personal little thing. Um, what on earth got you into that? Because producing your own podcast, organizing your own guests, dealing with your own audio, I assume you do all your editing, pretty much you're a one woman show. Um, yep. I, I mean, this, this is, this is a hard gig. What were you thinking? I know. I don't know if I quite knew what I was um, biting off when it happened. And, you know, long story short, and I could get more into it if you're interested, but I was working um, on a television show at the time. And, you know, I've done several different shows, but I was working on a live daily show. So it was a really intense um time in my life. I spent about a year and a half doing this and I was working with an executive producer who, um, let's just say he wasn't the biggest fan of women <laughs> and it became a pretty difficult environment. Um, I, I was feeling kind of gaslighted, not kind of, very gaslighted. Mm-hmm. I was feeling singled out. I was questioning my skill level. You know, there's a lot of conversations in therapy during that time about work. And I remember going on Joe Rogan's podcast. I had been kind of a semi-regular guest on his yeah. show. I've done it a few times. And he was like, Kara, why don't you have a podcast? And I was like, why would I have a podcast? I have no idea how to do a podcast. And he was like, it's easy. Everybody tell Kara she should have a podcast. And, you know, really what he was telling me was that it's an opportunity to have something that's yours. You know, you can work on television, you can work in these other outlets, and oftentimes you're trying to deliver on somebody else's vision. But when you have your own show, 
you pick the topics, you pick what goes on air, you pick what doesn't. Um, and really there's nobody there to gaslight mm-hmm. you. And so because he said it on air, guys, tell her she should do a podcast. Then because Joe is Joe, I got like thousands of tweets <laughs> from people saying, yeah, totally. We'd listen to it. And then I, I couldn't not start it. And honestly, it's, it's one of the best decisions I think I ever made. Mm. And that freedom you talk about, I mean, I, I know exactly what you mean there because people have asked me sometimes about, you know, commercial activities with regards to, you know, I've been doing my show now for 25 years and mm. I say, well, no, hang on. Three tri- triple R is a community radio station. That means there is no big brother standing over my shoulder saying you can't have Kara on the show. You know, she doesn't mm-hmm. fit in with our commercial values. Uh, I can do whatever I want. You know, I mean, obviously, at the sort of, I have the privilege of the audience saying, you know, to some degree, we like that. But but beyond that, it's it's up to us. You know, we can do our own thing, and it gives you an incredible latitude and an incredible freedom to explore topics that you otherwise wouldn't see in the commercial environment. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's great. I uh, love it. I love it. Yeah. And, and, you know, the fantastic thing when you come out here to Australia with regards to your podcast is you'll be able to immediately determine whether or not someone listens to your podcast. Because if someone walks up and says, hi, Cara, then uh-huh. you're going <laughs> to know straight away, right? And Although I always do give a pass to my British and Australian audience when oh, they yeah. call me Cara instead of Cara, because I know it's kind of a hard word to pronounce, or it's just not, it's not common, at least for my British audience. They're always like, Cara, that's so weird to say. <laughs> yeah, I, I think we, we'll, we'll, we'll do our best, but apologies, because uh, I think you're, you're going to get Cara quite a lot. Here, yeah, so. yeah, no, no worries whatsoever. Yeah. Now, if you don't have enough to do already, of course, you've decided to go back and do your PhD, which I understand is, is round two. You, you started once before and you've gone back now. I, I mean, this is really interesting to me because I know that once you've been out, going back in, especially when you've been in an interviewer, going back in is a completely different scenario. How are you finding it? Oh, my goodness. So I'm having to relearn how to write scientific papers because I unlearned all of that really kind of esoteric and jargon heavy, dense, terse writing when I. Yeah. Right. When I learned how to do public science communication and now I'm having to switch gears once again and actually maintain a balance between the two. So that's a bit frustrating. But I do have to say that I really love my program. I'm I'm getting a Ph.D. in clinical psychology and it's actually a program that is designed for adult learners. So oh, wow. it's it's yeah. here in um, in Southern California. It's actually in Santa Barbara. And most of the coursework is done remotely and the average age of an individual joining the program is 36. So I'm not, you know, back in school with 22-year-olds. I'm not having to be in the classroom all day, every day. All the lectures are done remotely. They're much more discussion-oriented. It's mostly papers. Um, and then, of course, when I start to do the clinical component, that's when I will be seeing patients within my own community. So it's a great program for me, and it really works with my career and my lifestyle. But it is still full-time. It's yeah. a lot of work. Yeah, no, I spend a lot of time with a company called Asylum Research over in Santa Barbara, so I know the place well it's a it's a beautiful town fantastic absolutely one of the things you mentioned before was your your treatment as a woman when you're in the sort of more video broadcasting industry how are you finding that now that you're going back professionally into science because you know it's not exactly an industry that sort of holds up its uh, standards in terms of the way women have been treated historically 
Oh, it's so true. You know, it's interesting because I am, my master's degree was in neurobiology. So I was in the biology department and we actually had not really a joint appointment, but we had some physics students in our lab because we were an electrophysiology lab. So we would go to the physics machine shop quite a bit. And when I would walk the halls of the physics department, I remember one of the grad students, Mike, would be like, I should go with you. They haven't like seen a woman in a while. <laughs> Whereas, you know, the biology department wasn't as bad, but psychology is actually kind of on the other side of that trend. And it's predominantly female. And so I've really seen a lot of different uh um, different sides of that equation. And one thing that really did blow my mind when I first started in television production is that it's almost worse, if not the same in TV as it is in the sciences with, mm-hmm. with regards to gender parity. Um, it's not the most, uh, let's say, friendly industry for women. And I think many people are starting to see that as well with all of the Harvey Weinstein um, mm, news yeah. that's come out. Is that trending in Australia too? Have people seen that? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's, um, you know, most of our, our viewing comes from the United States or a big portion of it. So that, that's been big news over here. And for those of us who don't watch the news on television anymore and, you know, stick to Twitter and social media feeds, um, it's hard to miss. Absolutely. Yeah. And so and it's not just about sexual harassment. It's about, you know, the experiences that I had when I was working on that show. It's about um, just opportunities not being available for women. You know, when you look at industry awards, you look at um, directors, you look at cinematographers, you look at editors, um, women just are not represented the same way. Female leads don't make as much money as male leads mm. in films. When I'm on a shoot, whether it's in studio or in the field, it's incredibly rare for me to have a female director of photography or a female camera operator or even a female um, sound operator. So many of these jobs are filled with men. Um, the gender parity is just really not there. Yeah. It's interesting even when you look at films and scientific films in particular, when you look at the key scientist in a scientific film, if it's if it's a female scientist, they're usually a you know twenty seven year old underwear model. Whereas if it's a, <laughs> if it's a male scientist, you know they're a grey haired, distinguished looking you know sixty year old. And even even there, there's a disparity where there's the choice. It's quite you know it's quite disturbing in a way. You're so right. I mean, it's you know representation is not where it should be. And there's a few films that get it right, but I think on the whole, it needs a lot of work. Mm. I was thinking um, just the other day. I was listening actually to one of your your um, talk nerdy podcasts, and you were just talking about. Uh, I think you were talking about Rosalind Franklin and and some of the great women in science that haven't been recognised. And I was thinking, I <laughs> I, I recently had the uh, the amazing privilege of being able to interview Jane Goodall and 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 it sort of took me back about 15 years ago to when I interviewed and you may know this name Jocelyn Bell who you know was the the woman who discovered the pulsar and when I think about these two women scientists that I that I interviewed you know it just it, it felt like I was part of history just talking to them especially with Jane Goodall just an incredible woman I mean who's really stood out for you in your career in terms of women that you've interviewed that are just outstanding that you know in in some sense haven't been recognized as much as they should have been Oh, goodness. I've been really lucky to interview a lot of women. I've actually um, 
you know, intentionally maintained um, gender parity on the podcast. So my show on my show, I interview at least 50 percent, if not more women. But I also tend to focus sort of on uh, the less famous of the scientists. Mm-hmm. And so um, I have a lot of graduate students on my show, a lot of early career scientists on my show um, and also a lot of kind of popularizers of science. Somebody who I interviewed on the show recently who just really inspired me um, is named Rebecca Atencia. And it's interesting that you mentioned Jane Goodall because Rebecca is the head veterinarian and the executive director of, of the Chimpango oh, yeah, uh, yeah. Chimpanzee Rehabilitation Center yeah, yeah, in the Congo. That. I heard that podcast. I love that. It was fantastic. Oh, yeah. Just fascinating the work that she's done and you know she was working for years as a veterinarian and she told me I'm out there in the field I'm you know checking vitals on these orphaned infant chimpanzees and I'm realizing you know I'm taking blood pressure and all these different measurements and I'm realizing I don't know what normal is nobody's ever written about that I should probably get a PhD Um, and so she goes back to school to study basically cardiac physiology in chimpanzees in great apes and writes a dissertation on that so that she can improve her work as a director of this rehab center and as as a veterinarian it's mm. just so inspiring um so i've i've been lucky enough to to interview many women like that some women that maybe are um a little bit more popular to uh to an australian audience is maybe katie mack yep. do do you know you follow yeah, katie we've, we've yeah interviewed katie yep Yeah, and she's really great. She's a really good friend of mine. And whenever she's in town, we get to spend a lot of time together. But she's definitely one of those, I think, up and coming scientists who Mm. captures the imagination and who really does science communication the right way. And um, she's definitely one that I think people should continue to follow. But there's so many great women. Um, I interviewed Shannon Styrone recently, Shana Montanari, um, Dr. Kiki Sanford. Um, gosh, the list is just mm. long. Uh, Jody Rowley, she's actually also, um, an Australian scientist. She is the curator of amphibian and reptile conservation biology at the Australian Museum. Yeah. And she's fascinating. Um, well, so know, many great women. We, we, we're going to have to exchange some lists here because, uh, <laughs> we, we interview similar people and we have similar, I know. similar, uh, <laughs> you know, in fact, one of my, my amazing co-hosts, you know, I, I, I hate to, um, Hate to have to admit this, but we we lost her recently to some dinky school called Harvard over in, <laughs> and you know she she has been on on our program now for probably seven or eight years as one of my co-hosts, and I I recruited her after she did just an amazing interview. She works on the Bionic Eye, and you know she's moved over now to to Harvard and doing some work at Cambridge as well, just to to further that. But one, literally one of the best communicators I've ever come across, and and you know one of those natural ones, untrained. But just naturally fantastic and passionate about it. So it really, I think it makes such a, such a huge difference to, to get those people in. And, and, and like you say, we, we also get, um, graduate students in a lot of, a lot of younger students. In fact, uh, this, this, uh, of course, people are hearing it now, but it, it was recorded two weeks ago. And the reason it wasn't on last week, um, which is a week ahead for you and I, Carol, um, <laughs> is that I Time have, travel. I have several, several PhD students on this week and I'm sorry, but they're first. So <laughs> <you have laughs> no, that's good. That's good. Yeah. I think that the PhD students really do offer, um, a really important perspective. I think it's a little bit more tangible 
tangible for a lot of people listening because they're in it, you know, and oftentimes they're the ones who are really doing all the hard work. And I, I, you know, am not afraid to say that I think sometimes the students are the ones who have the better science communication training. Yeah. You know, they're in touch with what's going on on Twitter and on Facebook and what's airing on television and what podcasts are out there. And so, and they're, they haven't had a lot of like terrible training to unlearn. Um, and so I love that about grad students. Anytime that there's a big paper that gets published, I really want to highlight it. I'm much more interested in, you know, interviewing the second author on the paper than the first or the last author. (laughs) You you mean the the one that did all the work? So yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) So it's interesting because I, when I think, you know, I've I've got two young boys and, and they, they tell me about the, you know, my 10 year old tells me about the presentations he has to do in primary school. And I'm thinking, gee, the first time I did that, I was in honors at at university doing physics, you know, so Mm -hmm. they're, they're coming through with a different level of communication skill than what we were taught in school, which has got to have a big, big effect on what they can do. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think sometimes we get kind of cynical and we say, what is the world coming to right now? Everything's going to hell in a handbasket and kids today, they just don't understand. But the truth of the matter is, if you um, look back and you really do look at the forest for the trees, you'll realize that the arrow of progress is really pointing in a very particular direction. And we have made a lot of progress yeah. over the, the past several decades. And kids today know a hell of a lot more than we did when we were mm. kids. Yeah. Now, you you going back and doing your PhD, I mean, in, in a sense, it gives you an opportunity to do something that others probably can't, and that is... If you, if you hear all, you hear all these stories about what women are facing in terms of the challenges of academia and so forth, but they're coming through without that sort of experience that you've had of being out and interviewing so many and being so exposed to so many different sciences. I mean, in a sense, you should write a book on your experience here so that you can, you can document what, what aspects of being a woman affect your travels through the academic scenario. Yeah, and I mean, I could write a book if I wanted to, and maybe one day I will. I've always got editors and agents hounding me to write a book, and I'm like, how? How do you expect that I do that with all the other things I'm doing? Um, But eventually, I would love to write a book. I don't know if that will will be the book that I write, um, but it is something that really matters to me, being able to document. I think, if anything, I have a special perspective because I'm doing this older. I waited 10 years before I went back, and I have a better concept of work-life balance. I know the difference between busting my ass for another three hours to make a 98 instead of a 95 and, you know, going out to that birthday dinner that I promised somebody I would go to that will actually be really important for my interpersonal relationships in the future. Um, And to me, that's important because to be a well-rounded individual, you really need just as much emotional intelligence and, you know, interpersonal intelligence as academic intelligence and a lot of uh, scientists, they don't really focus on that aspect of their lives. And I think that's a real shame. Yeah, look, I was in physics, so I don't know what you were talking about. But um, <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it's interesting, though, because what you're talking about is a scenario where you've, as, as you've gotten older, you've enabled yourself to create a healthy mind scenario, and, and that will actually let you do your PhD a lot better. And unfortunately, mm-hmm. a lot of younger students don't don't have that at that age, which makes it really brutal. 
Yeah, you know, I agree. It's really tough when you're coming straight out of your undergrad, you're 22 years old, and you're trying to learn something like clinical psychology, especially, you know, it's really incumbent on you to be an incredible listener. It's incumbent on you to have, you know, deep levels of empathy and to really care deeply about your clients and about the the issues that they're dealing with in their lives. And how are you supposed to do that when you don't even know how to take care of yourself yeah that's a tall order you know it it takes time to grow up in life and sometimes you have to go out and have some experiences and make some mistakes yeah and go through some crap you know that's yeah yeah triple Now, we're, I mean, we're both science communicators, so I, I want to talk to you a bit about that area because I think it's something that uh, we're both pretty passionate about. In terms of, for me, I find I love radio. And one of the reasons I love radio is because I find that audio is the great leveler. It doesn't, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter if you have pretty pictures of galaxies to show me if, if you're on audio, it's the, the purity and the clarity of the explanation that actually wins the day. Now you, you've worked in both spaces, you know, in, in video and audio. I mean, how do you contrast those experiences? Oh, my gosh. It's so interesting that you say that because I've been saying that on interviews I've been doing lately. And you use the phrase the great leveler. And then you um, you followed that with a conversation about, you know, whether or not I have pretty pictures of galaxies mm-hmm. and to piggyback that, but also coming from a different perspective, I love podcasting because when I post an episode, none of the comments are about my boobs. <laughs> none of the comments are about oh, the way dear. that I look or my makeup or, you know, all of the little things. I notice when something gets clipped out from television or when I actually do a YouTube interview and then it does end up on YouTube, the comments are so superficial. Mm. And I get so frustrated, not because I'm overly sensitive to those comments, although everybody is sensitive to that. I mean, anybody who says, oh, they don't affect me at all is legit lying. But it's more that I just get frustrated. I'm like, did you not hear anything I just said? I worked really hard on prepping this interview and all you can talk about is how I looked. And so that's one thing I just love about podcasting. You can only listen to people's voices and you can only make your... um, you can only kind of uh, make your assumptions about them based on how they sound. Yeah. And to me, that's in that way, it's a great level, uh, leveler, levelator. No, <laughs> neither of those are right. <laughs> yeah. Levelator is actually a podcasting software that some people use <laughs> to level their, um, their audio. But, um, in terms of television, I love it as a medium. And I think that there are things that TV can afford me as a science communicator that podcasting can't. You you know, it allows me to offer the pretty pictures and to mm. go to exotic places and to really dig deep into the science and show people the science in a way that talking about it really can't do. But in podcasting, I get to talk about nuance. Mm. I get to sit down for an entire hour and explore a concept backwards and forwards. You know, I'm not really able to do that on TV where it's really important that you learn how to speak in sound bites. Yeah. And there's that, well, I should say, you know, your, your voice is a little better than Joe Rogan's. So easier to listen to. So you have, you have that on your side at least. Um, but it's funny because when we, we, sometimes, you know, as a radio station, we do outside broadcasts and usually whenever we do that, I, I'll, I'll say to people in the audience, you know, I'm sorry if you were expecting Pierce Brosnan, but it's me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> sorry to burst the bubble. Um, right. Like but, when people say you have a face for radio, yeah. <laughs> you're like, oh, well, thanks. Oh, that hurts. Yeah. Yeah. Right. That's tough. You know, it's sort of, um, 
Yeah, but you know, I, I, and the thing is, people will be shitty regardless of the medium. And on Skeptics Guide, I can't tell you how many emails we get about, you know, by men, of course, telling me about my vocal fry and how it makes it hard for me to listen to you or how it's hard to take me seriously or I really need to speak like an intelligent adult. And it's just like, you know what? <laughs> F you. Well, yeah, you I don't agree. I mean, know. Yeah, yeah, it's like you can't please everybody. Yeah, and I think, look, I, I have, um, you know, much like yourself, I have a very limited time frame. So only a very select group of people get to podcast in my car as I drive to work and drive home. <laughs> and generally it's Sam Harris, Joe Rogan, you, and, and on occasion one or two others, um, like, you know, Dan Cullen's history sort of podcast. But beyond, mm-hmm. beyond that, um, if, if you were vacuous, you wouldn't get a, a gig in my car. It's just, it's just that, you know. <laughs> That's a real honor. I'm going to really well, take that as a compliment. That's you know, huge. Uh, well, actually, Dave Rubin, actually, uh, I, I listen to sometimes as well, and I, I actually said he'd been in my, because I was catching up on his podcast, and, and he said, uh, I said, I've been, you've been in the car for about three months, and he asked to get out and go to the bathroom. So that was, <laughs> <laughs> Don't you love Dave? Dave is such an interesting guy. I've yeah. been friends with him for years. I've been on his show several times. He's been on mine a few times. Lately, I disagree with 90% of what he says, but I That's so okay. defend his right to say it, yeah. and I really care for the interesting perspectives that he has to offer. Yeah, that's right. And I think I think that's the key, though, is being able to disagree and be able to have good conversations and still being able to disagree. So, in, in terms of the um, in terms of the way in which you you communicate and so forth, I mean, one of the things I wanted to explore was your thoughts on on the way climate change is being communicated at the moment, because I think we're we're really getting off the off the mark on this one. I think it's really problematic. And I've noticed over the years that the attacks by climate change deniers have shifted from the actual elements of climate change towards the process of science itself. Mm-hmm. And we're getting more and more around, oh, you know, you, you changed your mind on this, therefore we can't possibly believe you. And so, hang on, that is the process of science. And, yeah. and, yet, and yet that that is getting some traction. Yeah, you know, it's it's uh, it, there's so much to unpack here. It, it, it's so important as science communicators, and I'm preaching to the choir here because you know this, and I'm sure that you ensure that your audience um, thinks or feels the same way. It, it's so important that when we talk about science, we just we don't just go, "Oh, neat! Look at this new discovery! Isn't it neat? Here's a fact for you to put in your mm, pocket." Yeah. But instead, we say, "How did they figure this out? And what was the paradigm before? And is it shifting? And did they have to develop new tools to be able to figure this out? And um, you know, how does this fit into our worldview now? And what kinds of changes have taken place in our thinking? And so, really, fundamentally understanding the process of science, what is the scientific method, is to me the ultimate goal of science communication. If people learn new facts along the way, that's great. You know, if people become more interesting at dinner, um, awesome. (laughs) I'm so glad I could help with that. But for the most part, understanding how science works is important. The, The kind of danger thing is that, you know, like a little bit of information, um, can actually be quite dangerous. And so when, I think this is fundamental to American politics, and I'd be interested to hear your take um, uh, on Australian politics. But one of the greatest things about American democracy is term limits. Mm. It's so important that especially our, at the moment for you guys, huh? 
Oh, my goodness. Absolutely. <laughs> it's so important that, um, you know, the executor, it's important that the legislators, you know, across the board, it's important that people are up for reelection. Um, not not the same in the judicial branch, but in, in the other two. Um, it's really important. The problem is it it kind of creates or contributes to this very short term thought mm. process, this very short sighted idea. And it's all about getting elected, right? So when people talk about, you know, we're not very good at planning for the future. And we also, um, I say we as the royal we, because I don't mean me here, but I mean our, our representatives. They're not very good at admitting when they're wrong. And they're definitely not good at saying, you know what? I made a mistake and I learned from it. And now yeah. I have a different outlook, which would be the scientific way yeah. to approach a problem. So instead they do it like the purely political way, which is never apologize. I'm never wrong. I'm just going to double down. And then when somebody does say, Oh, you know what? I changed my mind. All of a sudden, the electors, the actual constituency, the people, the voting public are like, you're a flip flopper. Yep. Yep. And look, and we, we have we have terrible. I mean, Kara, we have the exact same problem here. It seems as though, you, you know, we, we don't have the same term limit problem. But in fact, we have by default the same issue because our elected leader, our prime minister has changed so many times. In fact, usually we, we these days we just say, you know, every year you have a new one almost because even within their own our own parties, the, the PM's being changed um, within the election period. So not not as a result of an election, but before it even happens, they're being, yeah. you know, and what that means is you do have this short-term thinking, which is really problematic. And I agree fundamentally with what you're saying about the inability of people to change their mind, own it, and for the public to value that as a, a point of intelligence, not, mm-hmm. not a point of, of discrepancy or... or you know, um, a person not being adequate to the job. And, and we've moved into that cycle. So, you know, we have some big issues in Australia at the moment around mining, around some really disgusting things happening there, around uh, the way we're approaching, you know, protecting the Great Barrier Reef, or uh, all of these things. And it's it's just heartbreaking to think that, you know, politicians have put themselves on a lane on the highway and they can never get off it, no matter where it heads. And <sighs> it's problematic. It's really problematic for us as well. It, yeah, it's 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 a really big bummer. And I mean, I think it really is about seeing a, a culture shift. And you know, politics, um, you know, sort of by design is very influential on the zeitgeist. But mm. so is entertainment, and so is media. And so I do think that we have the power collectively to start shifting that zeitgeist into. I think a more appropriate direction, but it's a concerted effort that we have to undertake. And sometimes it's at risk of sounding like a broken record. I know a lot of my science communicator friends are like, eh, I don't want to talk about that anymore. I harp on it all the time. I'm like, I don't care. There's people who haven't heard you yet. You've got to yeah, keep yeah. talking about it. Yeah. And, and there's, there's a part of this, I think that, um, you know, you really need to understand how the other side's working on this. And, and to give you a great example of that, uh, you know, in Australia, as as is the case in the U.S. and other parts of the Western world, um, the vaccination scenario is is a problem here. You know, the number of people mm-hmm. vaccinating is, you know, is pairing off a little bit, and it's quite quite astounding. You know, when you think about it, and I, you know, I I, I often said to people, you know, uh, the the physics equivalent from my world would be saying, you know, look, stop using electricity for lighting in your house. It, you know, people are getting electrocuted. You should go back <laughs> to gas 
gas <laughs> lens. I mean, I mean, these things, you never get electrocuted from those things, you know, and, and really, we all know that we can get electrocuted, so why would you use that for lighting? I mean, that is the, the equivalent in physics to, to the vaccination scenario, but we've, I've had a guest on, um, on our show, which, uh, she, she came from our Royal Children's Hospital and, and her name is Margie Danton and she's fantastic and she, she works with parents who are concerned about getting their kids vaccinated. And the reason she is so good at this job, and, and look, I'm sure there's a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons is that her sister is anti-vaccinations. Yeah. And she's had to learn really to live helps. with that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the guys on Skeptics Guide, three of them are brothers, Steve, Bob, and Jay Novella, and they have a family member who's a flat earther. Yeah. <laughs> and it's That's like, it, I know, and it's it's like you're, it's it's absolutely bonkers, but I think it really helps them remain armed with the facts. Um, somebody who's going to be at Skepticon this year is um, a, kind of a new friend of mine, Britt Marie Hermes, and I think that part of the reason that she is such an effective speaker, and I highly recommend if you haven't interviewed her yet, to have her on your show, she was... Um, trained as a naturopath. She was a psychology wow. student here in the United States. She had a psychology professor kind of veer her in that direction, decided to go to school to become a, quote, naturopathic doctor. Um, of course, within the United States, this was an accredited program, which means that she got state funding, or I should say federal funding, um, to, to fund her education. She was able to take out federal loans, trained as a naturopath, was basically committing pharmaceutical fraud and treating cancer patients with like woo medicine when she finally realized that it was all a big scam and because and now she's like one of the most outspoken voices against naturopathy and alternative medicine but her story resonates so deeply because she was in that world mm. Yeah, you know, she, she can it. speak she from experience it. and yeah. she's empathetic to other people and how they get caught up in it yeah, and and I, I, mean, I often say with with the parents with vaccinations, if you go out and say to me because I haven't vaccinated my child, I'm a bad parent. I can tell you, there's only two words I'd ever respond with, you know, and the first one starts with F, because yeah, you, exactly, you, know, you, you can't do that. That that approach to not parents to vaccinate will not work because parents will respond badly. You 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 have to engage and you have to work with them and see where they're coming from and then try and bring them to, you know, to the 20th century, really. I mean, but you you do have to take the time. Kara, is yeah, there? I'm- um, sorry, yeah, go on, go on. Oh, um, I was just going to say the worst way to, you know, bring somebody over to the skeptical side is to tell them they're stupid. Yeah. It's just not an effective <laughs> approach, right? Like nobody wants to hear that and they're going to react by shutting down. Yeah. Um, and, and I do have to mention that I was on online the other day and there was a tweet I came across and I hate that I can't give credit to whoever tweeted it, but it was a picture of a woman wearing a t-shirt and instead of the t-shirt saying vaccines cause autism, it said, um, vaccines cause adulthood. And I was like, (laughs) I love that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You know, to be honest, I think a lot of this stuff, there needs to be a bit more humor in some of yeah. it. I mean, it's serious stuff, but sometimes humor can get you a long way. Now, from, from, a, I guess, a, a partly humorous side, is there an area of science that you just have struggled to get into? I mean, for me, I have to say it's statistics. And I, I recently met a statistician who, who, who sort of changed my mind a bit and got me interested a bit in statistics, but I have struggled with that. And maybe it's my physics background. You know, we always hated the people in statistics, but is it, what, what's your area in terms of the one that you really, you know, 
So the snore bit. Huh, you know, it's funny because I'm probably going to offend your personal considerations here <laughs> in what I say. First of all, I will answer that statistics um uh, uh, concern and say, ah, oh, I don't understand. I love statistics. <laughs> it's fascinating. And maybe it's because, you know, that was really the first math, um, that I took to. You probably did a lot of algebra and, um, calculus because you, you came up through physics, yeah. but because I came up through psychology and biology, statistics was really what I learned yeah. first. And it resonated. And, you know, it's how you make a picture of data. It's how you visualize tons and tons of information in a digestible way and make inferences on it. And I absolutely love statistics. But beyond that, you're I have almost, to be you're almost making me you're almost making me want to like it there, but not quite. <laughs> no, and sometimes it really does come down to did you have a good teacher? Did you have yeah. a good professor? Did somebody capture your imagination at just the right time? For me, I think it really is the the more esoteric aspects of physics. Mm-hmm. It's always been interesting to me as a science communicator, you know this, there's always low hanging fruit, right? Yeah. If I'm gonna give a talk or or do a write around, I'm gonna get views and it's going to potentially go viral if it's about dinosaurs or about sex or about chocolate or about black holes. You know, there's just like a handful of things that we know do well. And the one that I feel like does not fit but always trends is theoretical astrophysics. It's cosmology. It's this really esoteric, big picture stuff. How did the world, um, not even the world, how did the universe come about? What happens on the inside of a black hole? What is dark matter? Is string theory legitimate? All of these questions, um, it's fascinating to me that they capture people's imaginations because in a way they're so divorced from the human experience. They are a bit existential in nature and that could be why. But outside of that, you know, things about the brain, things about animals, things about um, interpersonal interaction, psychology. Uh, to me, it makes more sense that people um, latch on to those a little more quickly. And it's the same thing for me. I got to admit, sometimes when stuff gets real heady about astrophysics, I start to really tune out i'm like what are you talking about there's so much jargon we're we're talking in scales time scales um size scales that are really hard for me to comprehend uh, you know at, at when we're talking about like cosmological scales it's like big is just really big i don't know the difference between 900 suns and 3000 suns they're yeah. all just crazy big to me yeah. um and so that's a tough one for me yeah so, certainly i mean even as a, as a physicist i can tell you you know as a as an experimental physicist you know we kind of kept away from the strings theory people as well so don't feel too bad about that i think that's um it's an area that everyone has has trouble bringing down to the ground for you know for the, the normal people but but it's great you know you get a lot of those um popular science books that are written about those areas and they seem to sell i don't know they it's, do um, and yeah. you know what they are really interesting mm. that some of my best friends are incredible popular science writers in this area i'm very close to uh, jennifer Willette and sean carroll um yeah. who's like a power couple right yeah. and both of their books, Jen's book, she's written about calculus and she's written about psych- like human psychology, but, um, but she's kind of been in both of those camps. Uh, Sean almost exclusively writes about, uh, theoretical astrophysics and he wrote about the Higgs boson. He wrote about time. Um, and they're so well written and they're so, so beautiful. Brian Green, the same way. Even Neil Tyson, that's an area that he likes to focus yeah. on and they're really good at it and they really do capture the imagination. But I'll tell you, um, 
they're usually not the books that I choose first. But then again, I'm a weird, morbid person, and I like to read a lot of books about death. So, like, what does that say about me? <laughs> well, I did hear your podcast with the mortician recently, so that was uh, uh, yeah, that was that was fun. That was weird stuff, but that was fun. That isn't was fun. she great? Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh, Caitlin Doty is fascinating. Yeah. No, if you haven't listened to that, folks, uh, tune into Kara's uh, podcast there. That was it was really interesting stuff about um, different cultures and and how how death is dealt with. Now, Kara, I want to in- end this interview with a, a couple of questions, and this may seem vaguely familiar to you, but I'd like you to give us an idea if you're thinking about the future. What keeps you up at night, and what are you most hopeful about? Oh, you're so sweet. Gosh, I have no idea how to answer this question. It's the meanest <laughs> question to ever ask anybody. And now I'm like, crap. Um, uh, what keeps me up? I mean, you know, the most common answer on my show is climate change. And I think there's a reason that that's the most common answer. Mm. It's like really dire. I think sometimes, though, we can actually um, get a little deeper and say, you know, why is climate change a big problem? We know why it's a big problem when it comes to um the actual technological issues and we know why it's a big problem from an ecological standpoint but why did we let it get to be so so bad i mean that really is a human failure and so i think when we look at a lot of the big issues that we face in in the world um it can come down to tribalism it comes down to interpersonal conflict it comes down to people's egos people's narcissism people's violence, people's hatred, getting in the way of um, working together, getting in the way of their empathy, getting in the way of their humanity. And so really something that's been on my mind a lot lately is tribalism. You know, we have uh, a president in the United States that um, basically just on the side of overtly has condoned white supremacy. He um, condones uh, basically sexual violence towards mm. women. He is um, a, a poster child for regressive politics and for a lack of humanity. And it's really sad to see, not that he's in power, like that's a crappy fluke, but it's sad to see how many people actually support the fact that he's in power. That's the real bummer part of this equation. And, you know, I'm always really interested in reading books about war and about violence and about conflict and about strife and about famine and um, genocide and all of these things. And I watch a lot of documentaries and I know that it sounds like a huge bummer and I must be really depressed all the time. And I am. But the reason <laughs> for that, honestly, is because I want to know where we go wrong and where these motivations are and what we can do to overcome them because there's so much good in the world as well. In a way, that's why I think murder porn does so well mm. in podcasts and in documentaries is because it is aberrant because normal behavior is cooperative behavior and it's the aberrant behavior that catches our attention. You know, we're really attracted to novelty and that's novel in our world. So in a way that's comforting, but at the same time, you know, I I am really disheartened that there's still so much tribalism in, you know, 2017 in, in a world where we have such global infrastructure and communication. You know, everybody has a cell phone. I was just in North Africa for um, 
uh, National Geographic's Explorer. And I was hanging out with um, Sahwari in the middle of the Sahara Desert and some Tuareg people who are wearing traditional garb, who are walking around on camels, speaking their traditional language, living, some of them in poverty, yet they all had cell phones and they were all on their cell phones all day and very connected in that way. And I mean, to me, that's amazing. There's so much potential for improvement there. And so it still bums me out that we have in some respects, deeper divides, um, or at least similar deep divides, um, as we've had historically. So mm. long story short, um, I think it's the tribalism that bumps me out the most. And what about the hopeful part, Kara? Oh, what do you, you know, bring us back, is, bring us back. <laughs> um, it sort of is the, the other side of that coin. I do have a lot of, um, sort of faith in humanity, which is a weird thing for an atheist to say. Um, but it, so it's a different kind of faith, right? It's not like the Jesus flavor faith. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I do really think that uh, fundamental to human nature is the desire to be loved. Fundamental to human nature is the desire for interconnectedness. Uh, sometimes real psychopathology seems to have its roots in, um, in a lack of that kind of interaction when we're young, in neglect, in abuse, in those different um, types of early childhood experiences. And so there really is something necessary um, in falling in love, in, in caring for one another, in the human touch. And I think that in, in many ways, it's just that simple. Like there can be some big crazy thing happening in the world, some terrible geopolitical um, conflict. But when you think about it and you get to the roots of it, why do these terrible things happen because of a scorned lover? Why do these terrible things happen? Because somebody's hubris is getting in the way, because somebody was offended by something that somebody else said, or because they disagree with something that's, you know, central to their worldview. It, these things are ideological in nature. And that's because as human beings, it's really important that other people like us mm. and that other people agree with us. And I think that actually there's something really beautiful about that. We really do have the potential to be incredible global citizens and we have the potential to um, to live really harmoniously um, with one another if we can just exercise the empathic capabilities that we all have but i think choose not to lean into yeah kara it's been absolutely fabulous talking to you today and uh thanks so much for giving us all your time i think uh for those of you out there who haven't um done so already look up talk nerdy on uh you know all the major podcast places you'll find it pretty easily and kerry you're coming out to melbourne just in a well shortly after this is actually broadcast but in a couple of weeks hope you have a good time in australia thanks so much for your time and it's great talking to a fellow science communicator who's so passionate about getting the ideas out there oh my gosh thank you so much i had an absolute lovely time three triple Well, Dr. Linden, it's been hard work for you today. Oh, 
I am I am inspired <laughs> and motivated and I've learnt a lot. That interview was fantastic with Kara. She was easy to talk to, let mm. me put it that way. It was uh, it was it was great talking to a fellow science communicator though and someone who explored so many topics as well, you know, like we do here on the show where nothing's off limits. It doesn't matter what it is. So we cover you know, we've done everything from menstrual cycles to general relativity. I mean, you know, literally. Mm. Um and all those guests are great. So we've appreciated having Yeah, you. yeah, for sure. It'll be interesting to, to see her on stage in a couple of weeks. Yeah, so folks just remember if you want to do a search uh, on Think Inc. or just look up thinkinc.org.au, they were good enough to give us the time with Kara, which was great. She's uh, coming on stage with Alan Duffy at I believe the Athenaeum Theatre on the seventeenth. It's a Friday night, so pretty lazy Friday night. It'd be good to go along and have a look at that. Anyway, Liv has been doing our Twitter feed. Good to, we don't get Liv in as much anymore. She's all grown up. She's off doing stuff. And what's She's, our handle? At Einstein at GoGo? Underscore. 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 Yeah. Einstein underscore at GoGo. At GoGo. Yep. Pretty easy to find. Alrighty. Uh, thanks so much for listening, folks. Uh, enjoy your Sunday. Lyndon says it's sunny. I disagree. It looks cloudy to me, but I'm sure you'll find something to do. Remember, science is everywhere, and we'll chat to you again next week. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.